we've been journeying through the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, we looked at the life of Samuel, and then uh, the last several weeks we've been looking at Saul and specifically David. And um, near the end of Samuel's life, the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, we want a king like all the other nations have. And Samuel warns them, listen, God is your king. You don't want a human king. If you have a human king, that human king is going to enslave you. That human king will take your sons and your daughters. You don't want a human king. God is your king. And they said, no, we do. We want a human king. And so as we look at characters like Saul and David, we need to keep in mind that from the get-go, God's uh, wisdom for his people was not to have a human king. But he, he allows them to have what they want. And what we've seen over the last several weeks is Saul is the first anointed king of Israel. And we've seen this downward spiral for Saul. Uh, he was this great man. The, the text says that he stood a head taller than everyone else. Uh, and from the get-go, he, he chose to disobey God. And we've seen this downward spiral in Saul where he's growing increasingly anxious, increasingly fearful, increasingly angry, and increasingly violent. Uh, David plays the harp for Saul, and Saul comes after him with a spear over and over again trying to kill him. After uh, David kills the giant Goliath, Saul's envy and fear of David continues to grow and grow and grow. And last week we looked at the relationship between David and Saul's son Jonathan and uh, how Jonathan helps, Saul, uh, helps David escape from Saul. And so David is now on the run. And interestingly, two of, David, uh, of Saul's children are in covenant relationship with David. Jonathan and David have a bound covenant relationship together. And then uh, Saul had given his daughter, Michael, to David in marriage. And both of them have helped David escape. So dad's not very happy with his kids. And David, his now son-in-law, is on the run. And so we looked primarily at 1 Samuel 20 last week. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 21 uh, and following. Specifically, we'll uh, spend most of our time in 1 Samuel 24. But I want to give kind of a, a rundown of what happens between 1 Samuel 20 and 1 Samuel 24 for you this morning. So in 1 Samuel 21, David escapes to Nob. Uh, so if I can have the map, please. You can see uh, right under Rama is Nob. And this is where, uh, back in the day of David, uh, this is where the priests lived. And so the, the high priest Ahimelech is there, and David escapes to him. And the high priest is a little scared that David shows up with just himself and his men uh, without Saul. And so Ahimelech is wondering what's going on. And one thing we learn over these chapters is it seems like David is uh, pretty good at kind of deceiving and lying. He, he convinces Jonathan to lie on his behalf to Saul about where he is during the New Moon Festival. Uh, Michael lies on David's behalf so David can escape. And now David lies to Ahimelech and he says, I, I'm actually on a special mission from the king. Uh, so feed my men. And by the way, do you, have a, do you have any weapons? Do you have a sword or anything? <laughs> and Ahimelech does have a sword. Do you know whose sword he had? 
Goliaths. The priest had Goliath's sword. And so he gives Goliath's sword to David, and then David takes off again, and next he takes off verse 10, chapter 21, and Marie. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at that man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Okay, so this has got to be one of the more humorous passages of scripture. Uh, David, once again, is good at kind of deceiving. And so uh, we're, we're not sure why, but for some reason he decides to go to Gath, uh, which is over uh, near the west, no, back one. Uh, and this is Philistine country, and Achish is a Philistine king. And so for some reason, David decides to escape there. This is how fearful he is of Saul's pursuit of him. He's willing to go into enemy territory to hide from Saul. But now Achish is like, hey, isn't, isn't this the king of Israel? And so what's most striking about this isn't necessarily David uh, pretending to be insane. It's that the Philistines are already acknowledging that David is king of Israel, not Saul. Even the Philistines have seen Saul is spiraling downward and David is the king, the true king of Israel. And so David pretends to be mad, and then he takes off again. And he ends up fleeing from Saul, Achish, and uh, he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, Adullam, you can see, is back east. So still with the map. Uh, Adullam is back east. And so David is continuing to just skip around from place to place. David is on the run. Saul is trying to kill him, and David is on the run. And what we're going to find is that in chapter 24, David escapes all the way to En Gedi. Now you can see En Gedi right there on the coast of the Dead Sea. And so this is where we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Okay. So, uh, crags of the wild goats, isn't that a great name? So the crags of the wild goats is in En Gedi. Now, En Gedi is an oasis, and so now we can go to that next slide. Uh, this is a picture of the oasis at En Gedi, which would make sense that if David is in the wilderness, he would want to go to a place where he can access fresh water. And so he is at En Gedi, and he's hiding out from King Saul, who is pursuing him. 
He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Okay, so now we uh, have another humorous scene in the Bible. Uh, Saul went in to relieve himself. So uh, next slide shows uh, this area where David was. This is the Dead Sea looking into uh, En Gedi and the Negev. The Negev is just the desert region of Israel. How many have been to uh, the Badlands of South Dakota? Okay, so the Negev looks a lot like the Badlands of South Dakota. And what's interesting about this place in the world is that the Dead Sea is 2,000 feet below sea level, the, the, the surface of it. Now it goes another 2,000 feet deep. And then the cliffs are 2,000 feet high. So it is the lowest place on planet Earth, the Dead Sea, 2,000 feet below sea level. This is where David is hiding out. And there's all kinds of crags and places to hide. And the next uh, slide shows caves. There's all kinds of caves there. Uh, the Negev, uh, if you uh, have heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls that were recovered, they were found in the Negev, in caves. And so this is the area that David is hiding out. Next slide shows another cave viewing outward. And so David and his men are hiding way back in one of these caves near En Gedi. And Saul comes in to relieve himself. Now, the theological question here is, Mary Beth, you're already anticipating it, aren't you? Is, is it number one or is it number two? Because this is really important. We got to get this right. Uh, the Hebrew literally reads, he went in to cover his feet, to cover his feet. This is uh, the Hebrew way of saying number two. So Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. And, Dave, and what he does not know is that David and his men are at the back of the cave. Saul's eyes are not adjusted to the darkness. But David's eyes and his men's eyes are. And so they can see Saul walk into the cave to relieve himself. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke up when he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Okay, so uh, David's men want David to kill Saul. Here's your chance. Take him out. Let's end this problem right here, right now. Let's strike him down. And what does Saul, what does David do instead? He goes and cuts a corner of Saul's robe. Now this is really fascinating that this is what David would choose to do, to cut a corner of Saul's robe. Uh, can we go back to that first slide? So back in 1 Samuel 15, uh, Samuel has told Saul that he's been rejected as king. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and tore it. Samuel said to him, 
The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. There's all kinds of symbology going on when it comes to the robes. Last week we talked about how Jonathan gave his royal robe to David as a sign of Jonathan saying, you will be king, not me. Even though I'm the rightful heir, I am handing the kingdom over to you because I know God has already given it to you and I want to align myself with God's vision, not what my vision might be for the world. And so he gives his royal robe to David. Here, as Samuel takes off from Saul, Saul cuts a piece of his robe and Samuel says, this is, this is a picture of God tearing the kingdom from you. And now David sneaks up behind Saul and cuts a piece of his robe. The term cut off is used four times in 1 Samuel 24. And we see this progression that Saul's kingship is being cut off. And David is emerging as the true king of Israel. Now, this is a sign not only of Saul's royalty uh, and kingship being cut off, but some scholars have suggested that uh, all, all uh, Hebrew men wore what was called uh, tassels. And these tassels represented, you can find them on a modern day prayer shawl, these tassels represented the commandments that God had given. And some scholars have suggested that the portion of Paul, uh, Saul's robe that David cut off were the tassels. And if this is so, this is also powerfully showing that Saul's ethical, moral status has been cut off. That he is one who has not followed the ways of God. And that David is one who has followed the ways of God. And so, as Saul is in the cave relieving himself, David cuts a piece of his robe off. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Okay, so uh, David here is uh, upset with himself that he's done this. Something about David is even though Saul is pursuing him, even though Saul wants him dead, David still sees Saul as one who has been anointed by God. And he says, I'm not going to put this into my own hands. I'm not going to attack and kill Saul, and I will not allow my men to do so. You have to understand that every one of his men wanted to kill Saul. And David says, no, we're not going to do it this way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my lord, the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? 
This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Okay. So, I wonder how often in our lives something happens. Uh, Someone does something to you or someone says something to you and the impulse is to react in kind. Uh, To take matters into your own hands and to respond in such a way that might escalate the situation rather than to diffuse it. David is one who in this situation chooses not to escalate the situation. And rather than kill Saul, rather than say to Saul, listen, I'm going to kill you. And in that cave, in that moment, take his life. David is one who says, it is God who judges, not me. And so I wonder for us in our lives, what is a situation for you where you feel like you need to play judge? Where, where you need to call the shots, where you need to be the decider, where you need to be one who is the judge? When God is inviting you to hold that situation with open hands, and allow God to be God. Something David understands here is that God is God and he is not. He had the opportunity in that cave to play God and he chose not to. He chose to restrain himself and say, it is the Lord who is judge, not me. And so then Saul responds. I'm just going to read the end part of what David says as well. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Okay, just a second. So uh, what's really striking about this passage is that David, in his speech to Saul, has referred to Saul as my Lord, my master, and my father. Saul is his father-in-law. He uses this term of endearment to Saul, who is pursuing him, trying to kill him. And then Saul, Saul's response is quite shocking in this moment. 
Given his recent behavior of pursuing David and multiple times trying to kill David, he responds and says, my son. And then Saul weeps. It's as if in this moment, Saul has a moment of clarity. He's been driven by such fear, such anger, such rage, and such violence. And then in this moment, it's like he, he wakes up. He comes out of this madness he's been spiraling into and wakes up and he weeps and he refers to David as son. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Okay. So, and there's the fourth time that the term cut off is used. Saul is asking David to swear that he will not cut off or kill off Saul's family. And David agrees to that. Now, um, some things I want us to consider with this. I wonder what it looks like for us when we are faced with Saul's in our life. Uh, when we have opportunities to get back at them. Uh, someone in your life who, who has just made your life a living hell. Uh, someone who has gone after you, perhaps attacked you in some way, who has lied about you, who has said things about you that are harmful, that are hurtful. Uh, I wonder what it's like when you have the opportunity to respond in kind. I wonder what it's like to choose the way David chose rather than Saul. Because what David is showing us here is ultimately really the way Jesus will show us to live. Jesus comes and shows us a way of being in the world that turns the kingdoms of the world upside down. The kingdoms of the world are like Saul. More violence, more power, more position. And what we find with Saul is that the more violent he becomes, the more he loses his grip on power and his own mental stability. And David, in the face of anger, in the face of rage, in the face of violence, chooses the way of peace. He chooses to face rage with compassion and mercy. He chooses to face rage with compassion and mercy. What does it look like for us in this day to choose the way of compassion and mercy in the face of anger, 
in the face of rage, in the face of violence. Uh, to choose the way of compassion and mercy in the face of hate and rage and violence, uh, I want to make this really clear that it does not necessarily mean restored relationship. Uh, there are people who will always take advantage of you. There are people who, unfortunately, apart from receiving and, and accepting the grace and mercy of God in their own lives, will continue to abuse, will continue to take advantage, will continue to be hateful, rageful people. And so to choose compassion and mercy and forgiveness in the face of those things does not necessarily mean reconciliation. Let's read the last verse. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Okay, that's wisdom. David showed compassion, he showed mercy, he showed kindness. He didn't join back up with Saul and go home with Saul. He's like, I think you've tried to kill me a few too many times for us to be buddy-buddy again. Saul goes home, David continues to live in the wilderness. But in the face of that rage and anger, David said, God is judge, I am not. And he responds with kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. The other thing I want to consider, and we'll explore this more next week, is what does it look like to be faithful to God the way David was faithful to God while in the wilderness, while on the run, while feeling broken and in many ways helpless. Uh, David, for the better part of a decade, lives in the wilderness, on the run, from cave to cave, from place to place, constantly on the run, trying to stay alive. Uh, what does it look like? What, whatever your wilderness is, what does it look like to trust and somehow be faithful in the midst of the wilderness? And to choose the way of Jesus. Jesus who, his body broken, his blood poured out. This is the invitation we're given, to be a people who are broken and poured out for the sake of the world. Uh, in a moment, I want to read through Psalm 27. And uh, I want to invite you to reflect on this psalm. This is a psalm that David wrote while in the wilderness. And I want to invite you to reflect on this psalm. And... Uh, Ask God, what is it you're saying to me through this psalm in my own wilderness experience? What are you saying to me? And then that as we come and take this bread and dip it in the cup, let us be a people who remember. Remember that Jesus experienced the fullness of the wilderness with us and for us.
that Jesus experienced the fullness of the brutality of the cross. All sin, all brokenness, all heartache on Jesus in those six hours on the cross. Jesus knows what it's like to be pursued. Jesus knows what it's like to have people want to kill him. Jesus knows what it's like to die. And he invites us to partake with him in this life he's invited us into, which is the way of the cross, but it's also the powerful way of the resurrection. We serve the risen Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the story of David and that we can know that in the midst of wilderness, you are with us. That in the midst of pain, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of uh, accusations and hatred, you are there. God, I pray that we would be a people who allow you to be judge, that we would allow you to be God, that we would be a people who place our trust and hope in you in the midst of the wilderness. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait 
for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord.